We're in a very tumultuous and difficult time in the United States. And the only recourse that we have is to vote and to vote in great numbers. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. My guest this week is former Vermont Governor Madeline Cunin. Cunin was the first and only woman to be elected governor in Vermont, serving from 1985 to 1991. Nationally, Madeline Cunin is the first Jewish woman to serve as a state governor and the first female governor to serve three consecutive terms. Madeline Cunin also served as Deputy Secretary of Education and Ambassador to Switzerland in the Clinton administration. Governor Madeline Cunin, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you for inviting me. Well, first of all, happy birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the news is out. (laughs) The news is out. I know that you celebrated uh, your 87th birthday just about a week ago. Um, So that is quite a milestone. And it does make me think on your family history. Um, Your family came to the U.S. as uh, Jewish refugees from, uh, well, you were, you were born in Zurich, but did they come from Germany or just? Uh, came from Switzerland. From so Switzerland. We, my mother was anxious about Hitler invading Switzerland as uh, Switzerland was surrounded by Nazi-occupied countries. And she wanted the best for her children at the same time. So I'm not sure if refugees is quite the right word, but we definitely were immigrants um, to this country, and Hitler had a lot to do with that. So I wanted to get your reaction to seeing a presidential debate this week in which President Trump told a white supremacist group, essentially signaling to them, stand back and stand by. Um, What does that make you think? It's hard to know, but I think it's a sympathetic response. Uh, it, I mean, it could be it could be interpreted very dangerously. That stand by for whatever happens and to to take action. And what we had hoped he would say was what what Biden said when he was asked about it. Uh, resist and desist uh, to cease their their very white supremacist demonstrations. So it was a very frightening and unsettling debate. Um, I called it uh, an R-rated debate and uh, hoped that the children weren't watching. It was such a terrible example of uncivil discourse for our young people and it backfired in the end because his ratings actually plummeted further as a result but it's not how grown-ups should be discussing any subject and it's it's just frightening when he also wouldn't assure the public that he would leave quietly if he'd lost. Um, So many of us are frightened that he's going to count on the Supreme Court 
to declare the results of the, the election rather than the people who voted. So we are in very unsettled times. And of course, now that he and Melania have COVID, um, it is even more disturbing uh, because he doesn't seem to be following the CDC guidelines of how you should take care of yourself uh, and others, uh, protect others when you have this terrible disease. So we're in a very tumultuous and difficult time in the United States. And the only recourse that we have is to vote and to vote in great numbers so that the outcome will be so decisive that it can't be questioned or challenged. Does the signaling to these anti-Semitic and white supremacist groups, I mean, with your family history, having been touched by Nazism and fascism in Europe, does it elicit a particular response uh, for you? Well, I've been so fortunate in many ways. You know, when I ran for governor, when I ran for other offices, I, uh, I never experienced anti-Semitism, and I never experienced it in Vermont. Um, and so I grew, I really have lived a sheltered life as far as anti-Semitism is concerned. And to see it brought out into the open in organizations like this um, is, is very frightening. Uh, hopefully it's a small and contained group and hopefully it is not active in Vermont. But this is, this sort of opens a Pandora's box, which we've got to close again as quickly as possible. And presidential leadership, the most important leader in, in the world, really, uh, he should take the lead in, in censoring it, in, in responding in a very clear way that this is not acceptable, this is not America. What would be your main concern if President Trump is reelected? My main concern would be the eroding of democracy. Um, we've seen actions in the uh, Department of Justice. Uh, he really would like to rule in a dictatorship manner. Uh, he's acting more like a king than the president. So that would be my greatest fear. Of course, how he has pulled back protective rules in the environment, how he has uh, censored civil rights uh, and protests. Um, I would be very afraid of a authoritarian president who already displays signs of that as he admires dictators around the world. But I would be afraid that he would bring that here. And 
we have to be really vigilant. And I'd be afraid about our security in the world because he's not interested in being informed about what's happening in the world. And this makes our country very vulnerable. Uh, and even things like education, he, he wants the curriculum in public schools to be more, as he says, quote unquote, patriotic. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean that we have a curriculum prescribed by the president? Uh, so I feel so strongly that we have to do everything in our power to win decisively. And that means everybody who is eligible has to vote. And I personally, even though I trust absentee voting in Vermont, I think I'm going to fill out my ballot and then deliver it personally to the town clerk just to make sure that it gets counted. And that's a sad thing that we have to think in that way, uh, that the post office is, is corrupted in a way to delay mail. Um, so, and we've always trusted the post office as an arm of government that is fair to everyone, but we live in dangerous times. And I try to cheer myself up by looking at the foliage uh, which I'm looking out my window right now, and it's beautiful. And in Vermont, we still trust our leaders and our politicians, and we, we trust the information we get about COVID. The Vermont is a little microcosm of honesty and fair representation. And what we have to hope for is that in the next four years, uh, Vermont won't be a unique example of that, but it'll be a characteristic of the whole country. You've served at some of the highest levels of government. You've been a governor. You've been an assistant secretary or a deputy secretary of education, an ambassador. And, you know, for me, uh, we grew up thinking that the American system of government was almost cast in Barry Granite, you know, it had its three-legged stool system of checks and balances. Do you have a sense now of a fragility of our democracy that perhaps you didn't realize before? Well, yes, I think I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of people are apprehensive about that, but I still have faith in the system. I feel that we can write ourselves as long as we have freedom of speech, um, as long as we have sensible people. What is unsettling is that the Congress doesn't seem to be standing up to Trump, even when they must recognize something is screwy here, something is wrong. Um, how can he how can he talk about not possibly accepting the results of the election? Um, so I just hope that 
we can write ourselves. I mean, I don't think everybody should agree with the president. Obviously, we have open debate, different opinions, but in the past, we've done it with a level of respect, with the ability to listen. I mean, Trump seems to be the kind of person you don't want to sit next to at dinner because he trounces on you uh, and he makes fun of people and he hurts people verbally. Um, so that's just such a terrible example, uh, not only for our children, but for our allies around the world who look to us for thoughtful and decent leadership. So I think, you know, we, we went through tough times in the McCarthy period um, when I was in college and we, we thought that that would never change and it did. And he was finally denounced for the harm he did to other people who had to appear before Congress and swear their fealty to the United States. This is bigger uh, and more acute, but I do think that democracy will survive. I think the country is strong. I think it will rebound. What do you feel is at stake with this fight over the Supreme Court and Amy Coney Barrett, who has been a strong opponent of uh, abortion rights? Yes. Yes, I mean, I woke, I woke up this morning and I thought to myself, uh, do I have to accept a six to three Supreme Court, six being on the conservative side? Do I just have to learn to live with that? And I sort of go back and forth because the outcome does look pretty grim. Uh, and it's not only abortion rights, it's the whole healthcare law uh, that could be turned over. And it just, it's, it's just so unfair start, starting with, with the, with the, uh, with the, let the Congress refusing to seek um, Obama's choice for the Supreme Court. So it's six to three, even if, even if the Chief Justice votes with the Liberals, that'll only be back to five to four. So their, their fierce agenda has been to t take that third branch of government, the judiciary, and make it their own. Uh, we need the balance of executive, legislative, judicial. That's what our, our, our government was based on, the, the checks and balances. Uh, it's not only the Supreme Court, it's also the 200 and something judges that Trump has appointed on, only if they are extremely conservative. So it is worrisome. Can we avoid uh, the appointment of Amy Comey Barrett? It's a big question mark. Uh, McConnell obviously is going to do everything in his power to not let that slip away. That's been his whole agenda 
is to control the courts and the judiciary, and especially with William Barr, uh, Chief Justice, uh, Attorney, Attorney General for the United States, he, he's a spokes or a mouthpiece for Trump. Um, and it shouldn't be that way. He should be impartial. So that's another scary part of what's happening in the world we're living in. So go back to look at the foliage and try to <laughs> try to calm yourself. I'm telling that to myself. But well, you know, for most people, life before Roe v. Wade, uh, it could be that most people were not even born at that time, but they, it, it's a distant memory uh, at best. So, um, but you remember it. What, what was Vermont before pro, uh, Roe v. Wade? What did it look like? What were women having to deal with at that time, if in fact that's where we're headed back to? Well, there were, I mean, abortion was a secret, secret uh, happening. And young women at that time were terrified of becoming pregnant. Um, and the mores were different. But, you know, the upshot of the limit of, re, 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 the upshot of, losing Roe v. Wade is that poor women will suffer the most. Uh, women of means will still find a way to get an abortion. Uh, they can go to uh, another country, they can pay somebody, there'll be uh, clandestine uh, abortions, and there'll be a lot of suffering. There'll be illegal abortions. Um, so, it's so fundamental for a woman's life to be able to control when and how many children she will have. So it's the ultimate uh, independence. Um, a lot of women have abortions when they already have two or three children. Uh, they may not want four or five. So it's it's a, a, a freedom that is not abused for the most part. Most people who have an abortion find it's not the right time in their life to bring up a child, and they may have children after that when they can afford to and when their lives can accommodate it. So it's fundamental, and it's it, it'll be a... Um, a strict fight. It'll be a battle, a battle which we should not engage in. If you're just joining us, uh, our guest on the Vermont Conversation uh, this week is Governor, former Governor Madeline Cunin of Vermont. Um, Governor Cunin, one of your main focuses in recent times has been uh, you helped found the group Emerge in Vermont, which uh, trains and supports Democratic women candidates for to run for public office. So this year, uh, 38 graduates of Emerge trainings ran for the legislature or statewide office, and 31 are moving on to the general election, including 15 incumbent members of the House and Senate. 
Um, talk a little bit about where you think you're at in empowering and enabling women to hold public office. Well, the um, achievements of Emerge have been such a happy uh, surprise in a way. I founded it seven years ago. I had been invited to be the keynote speaker of Emerge in California, where it started. And Vermont is the 14th state to have joined Emerge. And, you know, you might think in this day and age, why do we need a special organization to enable women to run for office? Well, it turns out we do. Um, even though Vermont is very effective in electing women to the legislature, we've never, and now we're the only state, sent a woman to Congress. Uh, many town legislators or town, town leading bodies have never elected a, a woman to the legislature, but it does. It, it gives women the confidence to say, I can do this. Um, you know, men, there's just a little different gene in men uh, that when they look in the mirror, they say, oh, I can run for the United States Senate. Uh, a woman will look in the mirror while she's combing her hair and say, oh, to run for the school board, I need to take two more courses. I need to be totally informed about education policy. So women are, are tough on themselves. But what happens to emerge, you get practice in public speaking, you get practice in fundraising, you learn how to make a, a pitch for yourself. And one of the nice byproducts, which surprised me, is that the Emerge class bonds. They form a group and they support one another. And that's beautiful to see. So Emerge has been very successful. Um, that We have a very high rate of success. I think two years ago, uh, 80% of the women who went through Emerge and ran for office got elected. So I'm thrilled with the leadership of Emerge. Uh, I'm now no longer on the board, but we've been very fortunate in having terrific people uh, lead the board and lead, lead the program. It's, every, it's about several months on weekends. So it makes it possible if you're working or are busy at home, you can still take the Emerge program. So why, why is it important for women to be there? Well, I think this election shows very clearly that somehow in some things, not in everything, but in some things there's still a gender difference. Uh, women are more inclined to be environmentalists. Uh, they're obviously caring about their children, not that men don't, but it's, it's more urgent. And of course, the question of choice and the question of uh, civil rights. Women aren't perfect. Women, 
run in all kinds of stripes and colors, but overall, they bring a new and fresh perspective to the political process. Your latest book is called Coming of Age, My Journey to the 80s. I wonder if you could just share with us uh, in the current moment for people, you know, older people, what has the experience of COVID uh, been like? What has been some of the biggest challenges? Well, of course, the big challenge is seeing the statistics rise and the fact that older people are more vulnerable, black and brown and Hispanic people are more vulnerable. So I think it's not just for the fact that we're old, but there's a sort of quiet mourning going on in the country um, that is not expressed or touched upon by the president, unfortunately. But when you see those statistics on the TV and Today, as we speak, states like Wisconsin are experiencing a new surge. Um, And there is a feeling of vulnerability. Um, But I I think we in Vermont have to be grateful that we have very good leadership, that we have a a great health secretary of health um, who has guided us. Um, and that we've been managing to control it. But sometimes it feels like we're, older people are dispensable. It's, it's not really so dangerous because it grossly affects older people. Uh, that's not the case in Vermont, but it is the case in some places. And there's there's a, a deep regret that it hasn't been managed more effectively uh, in the United States uh, when other countries like Germany and, and to some extent France have been able to control the virus. And it almost feels like a curse at times upon us. Uh, but we have to continue to think we'll get over it. Uh, And the only way we will get over it is following the CDC guidelines. And we all know them by heart, wearing masks, keeping a distance, washing hands, not being in big crowds. So it's limited our freedom, that's for sure. I'm living at Wake Robin, which is a continuing care community. Uh, We can't do the things we used to do, but we're also not doing them because it keeps us safe. And there's been no case at Wake Robin of the coronavirus. So you have to make a sacrifice, not only keep yourself alive, but keep other people alive. And I can't understand the abhorrence of mask wearing, of not wearing a mask being a sign of strength, being a sign of uh, not wearing it means your allegiance to Trump because he doesn't wear a mask. So that's a big conundrum and a tragic one because all the science tells us if everybody wore a mask, 
we could reduce the number of cases and certainly avoid a new surge in the next several months. So, well, let me let, let me ask you uh, finally. Um, you know, as we were talking about the state and the future of American democracy at the beginning of this conversation, you expressed a sense that you think our democracy will endure. Um, why is it, and, and I'm sure you've heard among friends of yours, the range of feelings about uh, just their perspective on the world ranging from uh, despair uh, when they look at what's happening to, you know, something a little brighter than that. What is it that gives you a sense that we will get through this okay? Well, our country, you know, starting with the Civil War, uh, has gone through very trying and dangerous times. And the difference between now and times like the Civil War and, and Great Depressions is there has been firm leadership. And my trust in this country is that we never stay on one side of the ledger for very long. The pendulum swings. Uh, and I think the pendulum from this time where we have so much, so much to worry about, where we've gone so far to the right, uh, will swing back. It won't go totally left, but it'll go to some place close to the center. Um, and I have faith because there are people speaking up. There are books being written. Uh, there is information still coming out. So I don't think we like extremes in our democracy. And I think we'll recover, but it will take public outcry. It will take public action. And we can't assume that it will automatically happen. And our, our only tool and our most powerful tool is the right to vote. So I'm confident we will, we will move more to a reasonable and democratic center where the voice of the people is heard. It's tough. It's different than it used to be. Social media are a huge influence. Uh, 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 spying and, and manipulation from Russia is a factor. Uh, extreme groups like, like the one that Trump dis didn't disown all those factors are dangerous, but I think the people are still fundamentally powerful. Governor Madeline Kunin, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Madeline Kunin served as governor of Vermont from 1985 to 1991. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.